0: know me my name is Sarah Shotwell and I give this little disclaimer before every time I speak here I'm not a pastor I have not been to seminary um, nor have I spent um, years and years of my life studying complex theologies or anything like that um, I am a mere high school history teacher but um, I uh, am so excited to get to talk about church history here today at, at um, the, the vineyard um, and this is the third installation of a four-part series that we're doing on church history and we started with late antiquity then we did the Middle Ages now today we're doing the Renaissance and Reformation and next time we'll talk about the modern church so the period of time that we're covering today is between 1350 and 1600 and we're specifically focusing on Western Europe And I want to introduce a theme today for this time period. And the theme is perspective. This ties into Renaissance art, but it also ties into uh, our, our modern way of talking about history and talking about faith. And here are a couple different definitions of perspective. One, a particular manner of viewing things that depends on one's experience and personality. Two, the ability to consider things in relation to one another accurately and fairly. And three, the method by which solid objects drawn or painted on a flat surface are given the appearance of depth and distance. So I won't tell you how all of this applies, but I just want you to think about perspective as we go through our talk today. And we'll talk about Renaissance art a little bit. That's the fun stuff. Then things are gonna get spicy, and we're gonna talk about the Protestant Reformation and the cultural legacy that has left on the Western world. I want to show you two pieces of art to start. Over here, we have a piece of medieval art. Over here, we have a piece of Renaissance art. I'm not going to tell you anything more than that. But what I'd like you to do is just look at these two pieces of art and make some observations to yourself. What do you notice? How are they similar? How are they different? What is being accomplished through the technique? What is the point of these pieces of art? Do they have a goal? Think about this for a minute. When you're ready, turn to a neighbor and discuss your observations. Okay, I'm going to ask you guys what you thought. Can I please see a show of hands? Anyone want to make some observations about these two pieces of art? Yes, right over here. really okay he said I will be happy to repeat all of these over here we have an emphasis on the death of Jesus over here we have an emphasis on the resurrection Jesus and Mary ascended into heaven yes an emphasis on the human body over here over here more ornamental emphasis on the clothing the bright colors and much more modest other observations let's hear two more Good, over here this is multidimensional. It's a sculpture and it's very realistic. Yes, so here we have a, a very emotive expression. We're connecting with it emotionally. We're connecting with the experience of Mary holding Jesus in her lap. Whereas over here we have a different experience altogether. It's less emotional and it's making more of a theological statement. Good, if you didn't hear that, I'm gonna try to summarize Over here we have an emphasis on Mary and her emotional experience and sadness, mourning Jesus. Over here we have an emphasis on Jesus' power and glory as he's bestowing that upon um, Mary. Really great observations, you guys. Other things we could talk about. Colors, uh, perspective over here, medieval painting. The um, uh, technique of using perspective in painting that had been lost since the age of antiquity uh, hasn't yet to make its way back into the art and the emphasis on things being realistic was not as much of a goal whereas over here we have incredibly realistic human bodies and faces. I want to give you a little bit of a close-up here this is the Pietà this is a sculpture by Michelangelo it's in St. Peter's Basilica in Rome and other things I want to point out about this that make it distinctly Renaissance as opposed to medieval and we'll talk about why in a second is Look at Mary, she's actually bigger than Jesus. That would be completely heretical to portray Mary in such a way in a medieval painting, but what we're getting at here is the experience of a mother who looks like she's cradling her baby child in her lap, and that human experience is the goal of what's being expressed here. It's not a theological argument at all, it's a simple recognition Of of a human mother mourning her child and the way that we connect with it as human beings is incredibly powerful but this expression theologically would have been a little bit scandalous in the time that it was created as beautiful as it is because it's also emphasizing the death of Jesus which is emphasizing his humanity a little bit about the Renaissance which really sets the stage for the Reformation in Europe. It was a time characterized by increased economic stability and growth. Now, some things we need to understand is that the Renaissance is really a comeback from the decline of the late Middle Ages. In the late Middle Ages, we saw the Black Death, which completely destabilized Europe economically and and sent Europe back several hundred years in terms of its development. Uh, We also see um, uh, an increase in population growth as well and that's going to change the way Europe is. We'll see urbanization, the rise of strong central governments, so we'll see a powerful France, a powerful Spain, a powerful England, a powerful Austria, and these relationships between these strong monarchies what are called absolute monarchies, monarchs who believed that they had the divine right to rule, that they had been placed in power by God to rule over others, will characterize this period in history. We'll see a revival of education, technology, and art starting in Italy and then spreading outward from there, and increased exploration and trade around the world. This is the period when Christopher Columbus set out and uh, landed in the West Indies and we also have people like Magellan trying to circumnavigate the globe. And all of this will have an impact on religious life in Europe. Some things the Renaissance is not. It's not entirely culturally distinct from the Middle Ages. Very important. This is because the Renaissance was primarily experience of the upper class elites in certain areas in Europe. For the most part, everyone else was living as they always had. In these entrenched feudal systems, the aristocracy at the top and the peasants at the bottom, and their lives were not a whole lot different than they were during the medieval period. It was also not a golden age for all European classes and places. We'll see um, uh, the Renaissance will emerge in England during the Elizabethan age with Shakespeare and um, the comeback of the English economy and we'll have a glorious Renaissance experience in Italy, but a lot of other places in Europe still feel very medieval. And it's also not the moment the lights have been turned back on after the Dark Ages. This is often how it was discussed by historians for many years, that we had antiquity, we had Greece and Rome, we had the early church, and then a thousand years of nothing, and then the Renaissance. That's not how we're gonna talk about this. It is important, though, early 15th century Europe was characterized by plague, a hundred years of brutal war, the fall of the Byzantine Empire and the Plantagenet dynasties, and dozens of religious and political revolts. So this was an unstable place to live. It was violent, it was easy to catch a disease and die, and there were constant wars going on between these monarchs. But before that decline we saw universities, um, what was called scholasticism, which was a rise of This idea that Christian theology and the reason um, that was valued in in, uh, antiquity in Greece and Rome could actually be reconciled to one another. We saw Romanesque and Gothic architecture and the rise of vernacular languages. So, vernacular languages would be English, German, Italian, these languages that were regional and became a part of these people's ethnicities and their cultures. So the Renaissance can be seen as kind of a continuation of what was being worked on during the high Middle Ages before the plague swept through Europe and kind of knocked everybody down. Last time we talked about the Middle Ages and we looked at three cultural forces at work in Europe. Um, And these these forces not only formed this new medieval culture in Western Europe, but it also shaped how people experienced their faith. Forces were Germanization or the influence of the Germanic and pagan tribes on European culture, Christianization, Christianity as it spread across the European continent, and Romanitas which was this belief and uh, faith in the enduring qualities of ancient Rome and a desire always to bring back Rome and that lasted for a thousand years. And then The cultural forces at work in the Renaissance church are going to be a little bit different. And this is going to sweep across Europe. And as European nations go out and colonize the globe, those ideals will be transported outward from there. And those forces are humanism, secularism, and classical revival. And I'm going to break down those three terms right now. Just to make some helpful distinctions between the medieval perspective and the renaissance perspective, I've created a little list, I'll run you through them really fast. If we were going to look at the typical medieval mind, this might be how a medieval person thought. If we were going to look at a progressive renaissance mind, this may be how they thought. These rules are not hard and fast, neither are historical time periods. They're helpful um, for talking about history. But there's always gonna be people in any generation that are gonna fall outside what's considered the historical norm for their group. So, I'll start with the medieval perspective. These are perspectives that we would have talked about last time. Religious life is about transcending the world, mankind, and flesh. And we saw this with the rise of monasticism, that uh, these people would, the most devout and pious Christians in the Middle Ages would seek out a life of monasticism, and monasticism was aimed at transcendence. The purpose of faith is primarily related to the afterlife, not life on earth. So in the Middle Ages, there was a huge emphasis on heaven, hell, and purgatory, and a tremendous emphasis on how one's own actions would influence what would happen to them in the afterlife. The truth is evident in orthodox theology, so we talked about the Nicene Creed and these bullet points that were established back in 325. This is what Christianity is. It's the Trinity, it's the resurrection, da 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 da. The orthodox viewpoint. And if we needed to know the truth, we would just look at the orthodox viewpoint and we would look at the church and how the church uh, uh, interprets that. A belief in the medieval age was that humans are depraved and humans outside of our own tribes have very little value. So there was an emphasis on human life so long as it had to do with one's own group and the furthering of one's own society. People outside one's own group were not valued at all. The community is all important and the individual is just a part of a whole. If there's one thing that could define the medieval mindset, it would be this. The group, the community, um, what was called the great chain of being. Everyone is all connected and you had a role to play and your individual desires did not matter, but it was about furthering the group. And finally, this has a specific uh, expression in in religious life, obedience and unity and faith are more important than personal conviction. So that idea of the individual conscience and one's own religious convictions were not valued. And in fact, were were placed at a much lower level level than the values of obedience and unity. On the other hand, we have the Renaissance perspective. Humans have a sacred responsibility to inquire into the workings of the world. So now, no longer, sorry. (laughs) No longer are we focused only on the afterlife, we're focused on our uh, religious experience and how that manifests here on Earth. The truth is evident in observing nature. So now we want to learn about the truth. We'll go outside and we'll observe the world. We'll observe uh, trees. We'll observe earthworms. We'll observe each other interacting. And this comes um, to us through Aristotle. So we have this throwback to the classical time period Humans can be transformed by knowledge and virtue, and all humans have value. Individualistic assertions of genius are heroic and glorious. This is brand new in the Renaissance, and of course it was valued during the classical period. We have these stories about Achilles and Odysseus and these um, heroic myths. But in the Middle Ages, we see the community is valued above the individual. In fact, during the Middle Ages, medieval painters didn't even sign their own paintings because they didn't want to bring glory to themselves. In uh, in the Renaissance, we see the opposite of that. Painters and sculptors had dreams of becoming famous and being heroes in their culture. And then lastly, personal conviction may actually be more important than unity and obedience. I want to break down first humanism. This is incredibly important that we understand what humanism in the Renaissance is and is not. Humanism, I don't want us to conflate with our modern ideas of what's called secular humanism or atheism. That's not what humanism is in the Renaissance. Rather, what humanism in the Renaissance is the belief that every human being has a capacity for goodness Virtue, intelligence, achievement, beauty, and justice. So it's not that we're all of these things all the time, but each one of us, as created beings, has the potential for these things inside of us. If we are properly educated, properly brought up, if our consciences are properly formed, if we receive a proper education in our faith, and if we live out that faith, we have An incredible capacity inside of us for goodness. And it's a very optimistic uh, belief in mankind and one that makes the Renaissance very unique because throughout history, the vast majority of history, has shown a very cynical belief in humankind. Humanism pervaded the artistic, philosophical, political, and theological movements of the Renaissance. And we can't talk about the Renaissance and Reformation without talking about humanism and what it meant and how powerful and pervasive it really was. One such humanist was Michelangelo. We'll look a little bit at humanism in art. I'm going to put up a painting here and this is one more that I'll uh, ask you guys to discuss, but this is the the creation of Adam here, okay. and this is a, one of the panels in the Sistine Chapel. Now, Um, When Michelangelo was asked to paint the Sistine Chapel, he was asked to paint kind of like the Last Supper. They wanted a, a painting of Jesus, the Pope wanted a painting of Jesus with the disciples. And instead, what Michelangelo did, talk about a heroic feat of genius, he had not done a fresco in 15 years. The last one he did, he was in art school. And he thought painting was so dumb. He was a sculptor. And he famously said, painting is not for me, it's for women, and that hack, Raphael. But he was forced by the Pope to make a painting on top of the Sistine Chapel, Uh, originally one panel, Jesus and the Disciples. Instead, he made this, um, which is uh, over 300 figures drawn on the ceiling, um, and he decided to paint the entire Old Testament. This is the center panel, not Jesus and the disciples, but God creating man. So with what you know about that, how does this painting depict a Renaissance idea of humanism? Discuss. (laughs) Oh, one second, we'll discuss for a second, then we'll, we'll dive back into it. Yeah. Discuss with your, um, with your groups, and then I'll poll you in a second. All right. What do you guys notice? I'm hearing some great observations. I'm pretty sure we could spend an hour just talking about this panel right here. Let's start with you. Yeah. Oh, Adam has a belly button. Interesting observation. That's a big philosophical question we could ponder for a while. No, yeah, absolutely. Adam does have a belly button. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> what else can we point out? Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, it, they're either equal or Adam's a little bigger. He's certainly more prominent in the picture. When we look up there, our eye is just drawn to Adam. Yeah, the eye-to-eye contact between Adam and God, the excitement, what is about to happen? these um, angels, and perhaps that's Eve there, right behind God's arm. They're ready to see Adam come to life, and they're about to touch. So you imagine, as soon as those fingers touch, something big is going to happen. Any other observations? Let's hear one more, yeah. Good, yeah, we see this sense of equality between the two. And, as she pointed out, this idea of actually painting the Father is technically depicting a graven image and is against the Ten Commandments. So we're now emphasizing not only the humanity of Adam and the humanity of Christ, but the humanity of God the Father. And we're venturing quickly into heresy, away from the Nicene Creed, emphasizing the humanity of both of these figures. Now I have to move forward, but if you have more to say on this, I welcome you to stick around after church and we'll talk about it together. This brings me to the next thing that was emphasized during the Renaissance, classical revival. So we'll see suddenly a fascination with and excitement about Greece, Rome, ancient mythology, pagan stories, and all of these things were attempted to be obliterated during the Middle Ages. So uh, many of our documents, Aristotle, Plato, um, mythologies, were actually kept in Islamic libraries throughout the Middle Ages and a lot of it was recovered during the Crusades. Kind of ironic. Um, What we'll see is an emphasis on mythology, Greek and Roman clothing, classical settings, and architectural features in our art, an emphasis on individual heroism, super important when we get to Martin Luther a little bit, a rise in scholarship, and an emphasis on on antiquity. Now this is one of the um, important paintings of Uh, the Renaissance and um, this is from the Dutch Renaissance and this is Christ among the doctors you'll see this little um, Dutch looking red-headed Jesus and uh, he's in the middle and then around him are doctors and this is from uh, a story in which Christ is debating in the temple with the scholars of the day so when they're saying doctors they're not talking about physicians they're talking about say doctors of the law and this would be a glorious thing in the Renaissance, to see this young genius schooling all of the philosophers in, um, in feats of intellectual glory. So that's what they're going to emphasize about Jesus. Jesus was not only human and divine, and not only was he loving and an arbiter of miracles, but he was also really smart. And that would have been valued by Renaissance people. This is another Renaissance painting. This is by Bellini, Feast of the Gods. This would not have been seen in the Middle Ages. Not only do we have a depiction out in nature, whereas during the Middle Ages, our uh, paintings would have taken place in heaven or hell, primarily, or in in a church. We see um, Greek gods and goddesses partying, drinking, eating, um, we have a fawn over there running off with a vat of wine and um, this, this kind of thing would not have been allowed during the Middle Ages. Lastly, secularism. Again, something that's a little bit easy to get wrong in terms of how we define it and how it was defined during the Renaissance. This is an emphasis in art, politics, literature, or faith on the realities of life on earth, not just the afterlife and not just the church expressed in a variety of disciplines, especially emphasizing reason and logic. And it was not initially an atheistic or anti-theistic movement, but denied the belief that all events have a theological or overtly spiritual explanation or implication, or that the church should be involved of every facet of life. For example, government or science. Was not seen by many as incongruous with the Christian faith. So you could have a secular mindset in your uh, practice of Christianity. It just meant you didn't necessarily think faith could explain every single thing that happened on Earth. Here's an example, here's Magellan and Vasco da Gama, two explorers that made important trips uh, in exploring the globe, and two heroes of the Renaissance period. I just want to show a little bit of a difference between how the medieval mind would have thought about this versus the secular mind. So this is really what Magellan thought. Magellan um, was a captain of a ship and they did circumnavigate the globe all the way to the Philippines and then Magellan was, was killed by natives there. But um, halfway between the, um, the two continents in the Pacific Ocean, all of Magellan's sailors started dropping dead um, due to scurvy, but Magellan was fine. He was not sick, and here his sailors are, their joints are dissolving, their teeth are falling out of their heads, their skin is turning black, and Magellan believes something really interesting. He believes all my sailors have scurvy, but I feel great. God is surely protecting me through his divine will so I can complete my heroic and providential destiny of circumnavigating the globe. So, he believed the evidence of his health was evidence of God's favor in order so that he could complete his destiny. Vasco da de Gama, a little bit more rational mind, hey, didn't I see a bag of dried fruit in your cabin? Okay. In other words, we have the scientific, reasonable explanation for why Magellan did not get scurvy. He had a better, more diverse diet, being the captain of the ship, And therefore, he was protected through the magical powers of vitamin C. This was not seen as an atheistic thing necessarily to say, oh, vitamin C actually can cure scurvy, not only a divine miracle. But some people did perceive it that way. As I mentioned, the Renaissance was an age of optimism about humanity and about progress and about technology and about where the world was headed. However, it was also a time of incredible uh, power brokering and power abuses and greed. The Renaissance papacy specifically was criticized for its corruption, wielding of power, financial abuses of, of parishioners, and sensuality. Bishops were extremely powerful and wealthy, but low-level priests were often poorly educated, and those were the people that everyday folks were coming in contact with. Even the traditional monastic orders were becoming more secularized, and interestingly, subject to problems of nepotism, which if you know, um, the monastic orders were meant to be celibate, the papacy was also meant to be celibate, and yet we had bishops and popes with illegitimate children putting their kids into positions of power within the church it's cr- creating great problems and actually a lot of cynicism about Catholicism in this period um, that brings me to this next really really important thing indulgences so indulgences will fuel the Protestant Reformation according to the catechism of the Catholic Church an indulgence is a means of reducing temporal punishment for various sins so in other words Um, Catholic belief in the Middle Ages really emphasized purgatory so even if you um, were a a believer you could be destined to do a bit of time in purgatory um, while your sins were atoned for before you could be um, reunited with Christ in heaven And, um, and indulgences which could be any kind of penance were meant to reduce your time spent in purgatory. In the Middle Ages, indulgences could be acts of penance, pilgrimages, prayers, fasting, acts of goodness, or charity. And that was the traditional mindset towards indulgences. If you want to reduce your punishment in the afterlife, here are some good things you can do. Um, And also, here's how you can reduce your your own discipline that you will receive on Earth um, by clerics. So, uh, you could be reunited to the good graces of the church by doing one of these things. But during the Renaissance, a practice was to sell indulgences for remissions of sins or reduce time in purgatory. And medieval people had a very specific way and very complicated way of calculating how much time they would be spending in purgatory. So, you might have an aristocrat who was a bit of a tyrant and cheated on his wife and had a bunch of illegitimate kids and beat his servants. And a priest might say, well, for these sins, you're going to have to go to purgatory for 16,517 years. And an aristocrat who was very wealthy could then actually go to the church and give a bunch of money to the church, and the church would say, okay, we now have reduced your time in purgatory to 1,100 years. Okay, Very complicated math. The church used all of this money for expensive projects and crusades and buildings such as this. This is St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, one of the most impressive feats of architecture on the face of the planet. Um, The portico and um, plaza in front of it was designed by Michelangelo. Inside, it's hard to see um, the vastness of this, but you can see how tiny the people are. Inside from floor to dome is 40 stories unreinforced you feel like a little ant inside this building it's just incredible it hits you with um, these feelings of awe and grandeur when you walk inside this was primarily paid for through indulgences during the Renaissance and early on people started criticizing this practice we saw some early attempts at reform of the Catholic Church from inside Okay? so usually when we talk about the Reformation, we think Martin Luther came out of nowhere and just threw off a thousand years of history and started doing his thing. Really, we had a couple hundred years of attempts at reform within the church before we got to Martin Luther. Devout Christian thinkers inside the church valued the unity of the Catholic Church and the divine personhood of Christ and the dignity of human beings. These were called Christian humanists. They believed Christian faith and theology was simple, an expression of love involving the following and practice of, of the teachings of Christ. They wanted the Catholic Church to throw off corruption and return to the essentials. But they still believed in unity. They wanted to do it together. One person is Thomas he laid he set the stage for Christian humanists early on. He wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ and he called for the church to reform um, and act more like Jesus. Uh, He did not emphasize academics and instead focused on simple practices and uh, those practices included simple piety, spirituality, prayer, fasting, silence, self-denial, kindness, charity, and forgiveness. These were not values emphasized by the Renaissance culture. Oops. We also had Erasmus, another Christian humanist. He was a humorist and a satirist but he criticized the church as corrupt, but he wanted to reform it, not overthrow it. I'm gonna move through a little more quickly. St. Thomas More, um, uh, a Catholic hero during the time of the English Reformation was one of the people who stood up to Henry VIII when Henry VIII wanted to leave the authority of the Pope. Um, He wrote Utopia, which was a criticism of the selfishness, vanity, and power preoccupation of Europe. And he also wanted to reform the church, not break from it. These were all Catholic guys who did not believe that schisms were the answer, but they believed that somehow uh, unity could be achieved uh, together through embracing the essential teachings of Jesus. But they were, uh, while they set the stage for the reformers to come through, not really successful in their goal. And here's why. Um, They did ignite this popular grassroots movement, but they believed reform would happen first in the hearts of Christian believers and that this would ripple outward. And eventually, even if it took a really long time, the church would reform. If we could just teach people what Jesus meant and how to live and what genuine Christian faith looked like, the church would reform from the inside out. Um, But they could not contend with the massive power structures in place and also the way that the church was fused with the interests of the state which we talked about during the Medieval lesson last time. So here's a thought from Thomas More, a quote from him, right before he was um, beheaded by Henry VIII. I leave every man to his own conscience, and leave me to mine. Despite believing in unity, he also believed in the individual conscience. He didn't believe that these things were irreconcilable. It's hard to imagine that now. Couple other reformers, John Wycliffe um, from the 14th century believed uh, the Christian life is measured by scripture. And then one of my favorites, uh, Jan Hus, uh, who was from the Czech, what is now the Czech Republic. Um, he was a pamphleteer and um, wanted to overthrow the Pope. He unfortunately was caught and burned at the stake, but this is a pamphlet he sent around Europe. Um, Satan selling indulgences. It was kind of a firebrand, and it got him into trouble. (laughs) So, couple more thoughts. (laughs) Catholic and Protestant Reformers were divided by many issues. But, here's the main issue that distinguished them. When we get to Martin Luther and his path, and then we talk about people like Calvin, and we talk about the Anabaptists, and we talk about Zwingli, and Fox, and these Reformation guys, Here's what distinguished them from the Catholic Reformers. They all wanted reform, but the Catholic Reformers wanted to remain one church family and reach a consensus on difficult matters of reform, uh, expressing those medieval values we talked about. Unity, obedience, community. And in fact, the idea of schisms within the church grieved Thomas More so much that it would bring him to tears because he knew the pain and trauma that it would cause to see groups throwing off a thousand years of tradition and moving forward into the unknown, separate from from the rest of the body of of believers. It, It grieved his heart greatly. But for the Protestant reformers, freedom was more important than unity. A desire to separate from the authority of Rome, which was becoming increasingly more difficult to endure. And those also express modern Renaissance values, individuality, self-assertion, and liberty. And these ideas will take us forward into the modern age. Last thing we'll, we'll get to today is the Protestant Reformation. This is a map of 16th century Germany. Over here we have a very strong unified France under a monarch. We have England, very strong unified England, we have the the Scandinavian countries, Sweden and Denmark, unified under monarchs. We have the Habsburg Empire, Um, we have the Papal States, and then here is Germany. uh, Incredibly fractured political mess. And it is no mistake that this is where the Protestant Reformation happened. If you look at France or Spain, which is not on this map, you see a powerful monarch in charge of a Catholic state. Anyone who's going to rise up and say, I don't believe in the pope, is going to be crushed immediately. The Reformation happened here in a place where uh, there was incredible amount of diversity between all of these little principalities. I'll explain what this is. Holy Roman Empire uh, was a complex of Christian and Germanic territories in Western Europe. This is before Germany was united as one nation. It's hard to think of now, but Germany used to be hundreds of many nations, each culturally distinct. They were unified, kind of, into this idea of an empire that wasn't really an empire at all. They technically were supposed to answer to an emperor, which was one uh, person who was meant to kind of speak for the whole complex of hundreds of many nations, and that emperor was endorsed by the pope. And each little principality was culturally and politically distinct. They spoke different languages, they had different cultural identities, and they had different religious views. This started in around 800 with the reign of Charlemagne and went all the way up to the 19th century. That's what Germany looked like before we see the German Revolution. Martin Luther lived in Saxony and Wittenberg, and he kicked off the Reformation as we know it in 1517 with a letter to the bishop stating, 95 reasons the sale of indulgences is not allowable by Christian doctrine. Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk who struggled deeply with depression and anxiety, and one of the things that he struggled with was a fear that he did not have the assurance he felt he needed about where he was headed in the afterlife. And the more he looked at the doctrines of the Catholic Church, the more scared he got that he was going to go to hell. And he never felt an assurance of his salvation until he came to the notion or belief that it was only by having a genuine faith that um, he would be reconciled to God in the afterlife, Um, but not through action. This uh, 95 theses spread throughout Europe within two months. Here are some famous quotes from Luther that I love, that I think get at what he was like. He also, like Huss, was a total firebrand, really spicy guy, Um, and he he also uh, presented some theological ideas to the world that once released, he could not take back, and it had a tremendous influence on what happened within the Protestant church. So Anabaptists, I'll talk about them in a minute, here's a quote from Luther. The Anabaptists, this is about child baptism, which he really believed in. Pretend that children, not as yet having reason, ought not to receive baptism. I answer, that reason in no way contributes to faith, okay? Very big distinction to how um, Renaissance humanists thought about this. Nay, in that children are destitute of reason, they are all the more fit and proper recipients of baptism, for reason is the greatest enemy that faith has. It never comes to the aid of spiritual things, but more frequently than not, struggles against the divine word. Here's another quote from Luther Someone sent to know whether it was permissible to use warm water in baptism. Luther replied, Tell the blockhead that water, warm or cold, is water. <laughs> Sassy. And third, <laughs> this is my favorite and really gets at how, who, who Luther was and how he was seen. <laughs> I never work better than when, I'm, than when I am inspired by anger. For when I am angry, I can write, pray, and preach well. For then my whole temperament is quickened, my understanding sharpened, and all mundane vexations and temptations depart. This is a fiery man, and he certainly got into some fiery debates around Europe that got him into trouble. In any revolution, timing is everything. Over here, we have um, the mess of principalities in Germany. And that would have allowed Luther uh, more freedom and more protection because he was not living under this massive, powerful monarchy with a big army that was married to the Church of Rome. Rather, he was living in a tiny little principality there. Um, It was locally uh, run by a a prince or duke, and he could have an ear with the leaders of his community. And because these people were constantly fighting with each other over territories, oftentimes these princes had political motivations for wanting to deny the pope authority. And so it was actually easy for Luther to get the ear of his local authorities, and suddenly he had the protection of his local authorities, and he could start preaching and distributing pamphlets From the safety of his own town. Over here is the printing press. Hugely important for the Reformation, had we not had it, it's arguable that the Reformation never would have happened. And especially arguable that the doctrines of the Reformation, I'm going to move to these two here, sola fide, faith alone, and sola scriptura, scripture alone, would not have been possible either. Now, sola scriptura is a Latin phrase, and it means that the Bible is the highest authority for all spiritual or theological disputes. The Church taught for a thousand years that the Pope and the Church and the traditions of the Church were the highest authority, and that's because no one, until the Reformation, could actually read the Bible. Not only were they illiterate, but it would take years and decades to make one Bible. And if a church was lucky, they had one copy, and it was chained to the pulpit because it was so financially valuable that Vikings would try to come in and steal them. Okay? So, one Bible, an illiterate congregant, and if you were lucky, you had an educated priest who could teach you about the Word of God. But for a thousand years, No one was reading the Bible, except those who had a spiritual academic education. So to suddenly say, our interpretation as individuals of the scriptures is the highest authority in our faith, is something very specific to the modern age. A lot, a lot, a lot of Protestants believe this. It's a huge feature of the Protestant faith, and yet, it would not have been possible until this moment in history. Because suddenly we have the Bible, it's being translated into vernacular languages, it's being printed cheaply. Now everyone can have a copy of the Bible in their own home and read it and interpret it. Now the Catholic Church would have said, oh no, this is not a good idea. Because as soon as you put the scripture into the hands of an uneducated person, they're just going to read it and interpret it however they want. On the other hand, it's not necessarily good to have all knowledge Um, monopolized by one group of people in power so we gain and lose something by uh, printing the Bible and by giving each individual the power to interpret it as they see fit And what you see immediately and this is what Martin Luther was not expecting darn it is he I think really genuinely believed that if we could only let people read the Bible for themselves they would come to the same conclusions that he came to But as soon as he put the Bible into everyone's hands, within five minutes, everyone had a different interpretation and was questioning his teachings. And that infuriated him. That's not what I meant. This is a question, we don't have time to discuss it, but I will ask you to think on it. How are humanism, secularism, or classical revival reflected in the actions or teachings of Martin Luther. Some things I will point out, secularism can simply be calling into question the power and authority of the church as an institution and emphasizing the the ability of the individual, humanism as well. As soon as we say we trust individual people to read the Bible, we are putting our faith in the human mind, right? We're putting our faith in people to know somehow accurately interpret what is meant by these incredibly complex documents that are historical, often removed from their historical context. We're putting our faith in people if we're going to do that. So it's essentially humanistic to say, you can read the Bible and you can read the Bible and you can read the Bible. Let's all talk about what we think and feel. That would never have been allowed in the Middle Ages. Classical revival, also the emphasis on the value of ancient documents, as opposed to the teachings of the medieval church. Really important distinction to make, and something I was taught incorrectly when I was learning about the Reformation. Um, Luther was not a hero of the individual conscience. He was not the champion of the poor and abused. He was a theologian, and he had a goal, and he succeeded. And... He knew, early on, that he would only succeed if he collaborated with people in high places. And the second the Protestant Reformation started, we saw concerns of the state and the government become immediately involved. Religious freedom, in terms of the individual conscience, was was not really on the minds of people yet. We won't have that until we get to the Enlightenment next time. Instead, Protestantism spread not by conscience by conscience or heart by heart, soul by soul, but nation by nation. Lutheranism spread one nation at a time. And here's how it worked. Luther or one of his followers would go to a government and it might be a tiny principality or it might be a huge country like England and they'd have a debate. And the prince or king or queen would come and listen to the debate and one of the debaters, either a Catholic or a Lutheran or ultimately could be a Calvinist, um, would listen to the debate and then they would decide, uh, Luther, good job, you won. My nation is now Lutheran. And everyone in that nation would be converted at once. And uh, the same was true for, for leaders that wanted to remain Catholic. Their followers would follow in suit. Eventually, um, debates would reach Switzerland, England, Scotland, the Netherlands, and Scandinavia, and the Reformation would gain supporters in all of those lands. But the problem when an entire nation converts is now you have the goals of the state fused with the goals of religion. So you had Protestant nations and Catholic nations, and those nations quickly found ways to start wars with one another. That's Henry VIII right there, the first monarch to become Protestant. The Reformation incited some of the bloodiest wars in human history. We had wars between Lutheran Calvinist and Catholic principalities. They raged in the Holy Roman Empire. In 1855, Charles V, who was the Holy Roman Emperor and also the King of Spain, said that each principality could choose Lutheranism or Catholicism. Those were the two choices, okay? and their subjects must follow in suit. So until this moment, Protestantism was technically illegal, according to the Emperor. He said, it's legal, but it has to be the Lutheran kind, and if a leader chooses Lutheranism, everyone in that country must be Lutheran. That left out one really feisty, spicy group of people, the Calvinists. They were not allowed to practice their particular interpretation of Christianity. And this, in turn, led to the Thirty Years' War, which was one of the most violent wars in human history. More wars that followed involving Reformation ideas were the English Civil War, which was a, a war of Anglicans fighting Puritans, and then the Seven Years' War as well. Bloody stuff. I have to move forward. Just some new reformers that we could also talk about. Zwingli. He and Luther disagreed on the nature of communion. Zwingli believed that communion was just a symbol. Luther believed that it had mystical value. Uh, And uh, Zwingli would say, it's unreasonable. We know because of scripture that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of God. So it's irrational to say that he could also be in the bread. Uh, Luther, we know, didn't value reason as his primary goal. And he kept saying, it is possible. It's mystical, it's a miracle. Why are you always talking about reason? Um, Zwingli was killed in a a Calvinist war in Switzerland and Luther famously said well he finally got what he deserved. A little bit on uh, Protestant versus Catholic aesthetic. When um, Switzerland specifically in the rise of Calvinism and um, Zwingli's emphasis on human reason occurred we see a change in, in um, aesthetics and also now people there's an emphasis on reading the Bible so whereas people used to walk into a church the pictures were how they learned and it would engage their mind during worship because they couldn't read and so everything was either oral, visual, sensory of some kind. That is what Protestant churches looked like after we started emphasizing the Word of God because now it was our faith of the mind, our understanding of the scriptures and learning of the scriptures that were to engage us in worship, not our physical senses. And in in fact, early on, Protestants had a distrust of the human body and the physical human experience and much more emphasized the mind in worship than the body. Gotta move ahead, darn it. Okay, I'll tell you about these people. (laughs) I'll put the the PowerPoint up somewhere. You guys can read those slides if you want to. Anabaptists were another group, and I, I think I feel a little bit of, affiliation with the Anabaptists because I was raised in a Baptist church and um, I was raised with a lot of the same ideals that the Anabaptists held. They modeled their churches after the early church. They were pacifists and believed in the separation of church and state. This was the first group to believe that. They lived in community together. They were peace-loving but very militant about their beliefs. They encouraged adult baptism for those baptized uh, as infants. if someone was baptized by a Catholic priest when they were a baby, but then came to believe um, of, through their own reason and expression of faith in adult life in the teachings of the gospel, the Anabaptists would baptize them again and they would say, your, your baptism as an infant didn't count because you couldn't assent to those viewpoints. Well, according to Luther, Calvin, the Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, this teaching was completely heretical because the Nicene Creed says one baptism for the remission of sins. To rebaptize is to call into question the divine power of God to justify and sanctify a child and to put emphasis on the human being's reason. It's modern faith, and many Protestant faiths preach this today. This comes from the Anabaptists. And these people were in trouble with Luther, they were in trouble with Calvin, they were unpopular. The Reformation leaves us with an incredible cultural legacy in the modern age, and with everything we're gonna talk about in church history, with every movement of church history, something is gained and something is lost. So it's easy to talk about what we've gained and lost when we look at the Reformation. Some of the things that the Reformation led to in time were incredible benefits to the Christian faith, and I'll talk about those in a minute, but some things that were lost, unity, Thomas More weeping about the loss of one family of believers unified, working together towards something. Now we have schisms going in every direction. Every time someone disagrees, they can cut off community and start a new movement, and it grieved the hearts of those people, and it still grieves the hearts of many Catholics, Um, I have a friend, a close friend, who's a, a Catholic priest, and he calls me his separated sister. And he says, I know you know Jesus, but it grieves me that you're not a part of our family. Some things to keep in mind, Protestantism and modernity is a fusion of modern forces. It happened when it did for a reason. We had the technology to make it possible. We had the tech um, the political situations necessary to make it possible. We had widespread cynicism about the Catholic Church to make it possible. The it humanist philosophy already piggy- piggybacking off of the way people were starting to feel about themselves and human beings. I do have value, I do have authority, I do have a will, I do want to have a say. Um, education and literacy would not have been possible without pamphlets, without the widespread um, Uh, use of Bibles. Vernacular languages, suddenly people are learning about the Bible in their own language. Very powerful. Um, There's a tie-in with republicanism and self-rule. This comes to us through Italy and we're gonna see a rise in this idea of self-rule. I want to be self-governing. We want our churches to be self-governed. We don't want someone 3,000 miles away telling us how we do faith here. They don't even know us. Okay, that was an ideal of the modern age. The printing revolution, The rise of the middle class, Protestantism was a middle class faith. It was a middle class movement. And then conflicts and rivalries in politics also fueled the Reformation. Some aesthetics emphasized by the Protestant Reformation, simple, clean, and minimalist, an empty cross, the use of hymns in church, devotional and pious poetry. So instead of physical art, now we use words vernacular language, and a small emphasis on visual art. And this is changing a little bit now. Um, We're entering the, the postmodern age, and a lot of things are different, but for a few hundred years, this defined the Protestant experience. The Protestant work ethic we talk about. The priesthood of all believers. It's not only Catholic priests that are important, but every person, so you're calling Um, could be vocational, that has as much value as someone going into the clergy. And then finally prosperity gospel. This was first um, the Puritans who brought this to the United States, but the idea that if if God uh, has to choose you and you're not allowed to choose God because there's no free will, how do you know that God has chosen you? And Calvinists early on were searching for outward signs of election. How do I know I'm chosen? I can do nothing. But God chooses me, therefore how do I know? And initially virtue and morality were the signs of God's favor, but later Calvinists also believed that success in career and financial stewardship and also procreation, lots of children, were outward signs of God's favor. So if you had lots of kids and you were successful, that probably meant God chose you. The Protestant identity, we're tying it up now, we'll let the kids out in a second, now emphasizes the conversion experience the catholic church often talked about faith more as a lifelong path now it's emphasized there's an experience where you go from being not saved to saved independent interpretation of text evangelism faith is defined not what you do but what you think the mind and soul is more important than the body and for many rationalism knowledge over mysticism and uh, spiritu- spiritual mystery. So, meaning this, um, theology, theological debate is more important than the, the mystical experiences of the faith. And then a special, an emphasis on a special vocational calling. Um, in the Middle Ages, this would not have been possible. You didn't have a special calling to follow. That's a feature of modernity. When you live in a country that's capitalistic and you can choose any career, for example, that's a benefit. It's great to be able to, pr- to um, pursue a vocational calling, but for a thousand years, no one was allowed to do that. So there's that cartoon again. Schisms, there's one AD in every schism that broke off from the church, and it says churches and Christian movements throughout history. And the little um, guy there is saying, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right. I showed that the, in the first meeting. And then we have a kid in the back saying, Jesus is so lucky to have us. And I bring this up because with Protestantism and with any expression of Christian faith, we need to hold that with a little bit of humility and saying, people have come before us, people will go ahead of us with different experiences, different interpretations, different theologies that they emphasize and most of us are gonna do something really good, and we're probably gonna get something wrong along the way. And this is where I wanna tie in a discussion about Protestantism as a whole, and what we've gained and lost. Luther, I don't think he fully knew. He was against indulgences. He knew that was wrong. He knew it was an abuse of power. He knew it was not true, but I don't think he knew what he was doing. This Pandora opening the box and there's Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of uh, Wittenberg Cathedral. With Luther, Pandora's box was opened and the church can never go back to being the unified family that it once was. Here's some modern takes on Reformation ideas. This is John Piper, modern Calvinist. All these ideas that were hotly debated during the Reformation are still hotly debated today. And some people, I think, think of themselves as reformers, and they're still living that Reformation mindset where they want to engage in feisty debate and see their opponents brought to shame. We see a lot of this Reformation stuff going on today. Here's John Piper. We do not begin as Calvinists and defend a system. We believe as Bible-believing Christians who want to put the Bible above all systems of thought but over the years, many years of struggle, we have deepened in our conviction that Calvinistic teachings on the five points are biblical and therefore true, okay? So modern Calvinist, John Piper, huge influencer in American evangelical thought today. Dallas Willard, another modern guy. He has a different interpretation on uh, on Calvin. Of course we must be concerned about works righteousness, I talk a lot about the value of spiritual disciplines, but also the danger of using them as if they help us earn our salvation. But it is crucial to realize that grace is not opposed to effort, but to earning. (laughs) Earning is an attitude. Effort is an action. Without effort, we would be nowhere. When you read the New Testament, you see how astonishingly energetic it is. Paul says, take off the old man, put on the new. There is no suggesting that this will be done for you. And here's Francis the Pope. We are created children in the likeness of God and the blood of Christ has redeemed us all and we all have a duty to do good and this commandment for everyone to do good I think is a beautiful path toward peace. If we each doing our own part, if we do good to our others, if we meet there doing good and we go slowly, gently, little by little, we will make that culture of encounter. We need that so much. We must meet one another doing good. It's a modern Catholic view. Protestant Reformation redefined how we thought about community, and this ties into Nicaea because we start with this moment in 325 where theological correctness was the most important feature of Christianity, and what has happened with our schisms during the Protestant Reformation is that we've reimagined community as being about being with people who think exactly the same way we do about everything. Community from Nicaea up until today, is not about sitting with people who are different from you, discussing, trying to reach a consensus, listening, but it's about conformity. And as soon as we see that people are different from us, we want to leave and start a new movement so we can be with people that are exactly the same as us. And then someone different will come along and they will get excommunicated or start their own movement. It raises some questions about what we are all about as a church. And I was really thinking about this at 2:30 a.m. last night. Where does the vineyard fit with a Reformation? And recently, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, actually a former student, she's back there. Her name's Caroline, and she came and visited our church a few months ago. I wasn't here, but I talked to her, her afterwards, and she said, "I really like your church. I like what you guys are about." And I said. What did you like about it? uh, Caroline's a costume design major. She said, your church is kind of like the theater department of the Christian world. (laughs) (laughs) We're just a bunch of freaks that accept everyone as they are. And I could not take that as a higher compliment. What I think defines us as a church is something really unique and it's something that I hope we can embrace and lean into as we move forward into the future. And it's something that I think could be happening in the Christian world now. As we talk about these movements in in the past, we've gained and lost things each generation. A lot of people talk about what we've lost in the modern age of faith. So more postmodern, everything's so relativistic. No one has a backbone anymore. All these millennials. But what have we gained in faith? And that's what I want to start celebrating. And I think what we've gained is a celebration of diversity. We don't have to all be the same to be in community. We don't have to believe the same things. We don't have to have the same political goals. We don't have to have the same theologies to be together and to ask each other uh, hard questions and to to be with one another, and to love one another, and to support one another. We're figuring it out together. Here's Voltaire. Funny quote to end the talk. He's talking about religious freedom and diversity and why diversity is so great. If there was only one religion in England there would be the danger of tyranny. If there were two they would cut each other's throats. But in England there are 30 and they live happily together in peace. Ironically, it is by being different and unique that we can create a loving, harmonious community that's defined by our acceptance of each other as different. Lastly, one other thing, just to think on and how it could be reimagined in our faith. Humanism, any system or mode of thought or action in which human interests, values, and dignity predominate And I think what makes Christianity so unique is it was the first major religious movement to come forward and say, the dignity of every human being matters. Thank you, you guys.